This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Welcome to the show, and we welcome back to our show, Northampton City Council Rachel Mayori. This is a continuation of the segment which we began some months ago that I wanted to call Counselor's Corner, which, well, got this reception from Counselor Stan Moulton, former Gazette editor, now I believe Ward 3 City Counselor, who said, I think this is a great idea to have the counselors on regularly. We'll talk about local issues. We'll, we'll talk about the things that are really roiling the city, the important policy matters we have to do, the things that are in Northampton, the issues in Northampton that affect uh, uh, cities, municipalities across the region. Just don't call it Counselor's Corner. <laughs> I said, oh, great, Stan. Thanks very much. So we, we may or may not be calling we it. We could call it not Counselor's Corner. <laughs> Or kibitzing with the counselors. Something Although, like that, yeah. All right, we'll see. We have Counselor Rachel Mayori with us today. Um, I, 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 we're going to be talking about the ballot issue, the ballot questions uh, that we are all voting on now or will soon vote on. and Or you just voted on because you have a sticker that says, I voted early, which is the first time I've seen a sticker like that. Monty's a little jealous of the sticker. No, they should send one with your mail-in <laughs> ballots that say, I voted by mail. That's a good point. Put it in the suggestion box. Okay. Yeah, but no way of verifying it. You don't only get your sticker after there's proof that you voted you were <laughs> physically there. Uh, we don't want people claiming to have voted who didn't. Okay, listen. I'd like to know, uh, Councillor Mayori, um, spend, spend a, a minute or two with us for uh, those of our listeners who don't know, really don't know who you are, um, and, I'd like, and, and help us understand this question, which I have asked all of the counselors who have come on as we've begun this new segment, Counselor's Corner, or kibitzing with the counselors, if you prefer, um, which is, why did you run for city council? And I, the question really is prompted by my appreciation for the enormous amount of work it is, the effort that it takes, the concentration and the energy that you have to devote to this. Why run for city council? Right. Well, it's not a behavioral disorder, but um, <laughs> it was just like a lot of people. Now, there's a new campaign slogan, not a <laughs> not behavioral, a behavioral dis disorder. <laughs> Known behavioral disorder. <laughs> you know, it was that time of where, you know, that big cup of coffee that the Trump administration kind of provided all of us where, you know, I've been an activist for years and years, but it really made me look at the electoral system more and not just working outside of of politics, you know, outside of the, the structure. And, you know, it was a time when we were being told, you know, in our groups of women, let's get some women on there, let's get some rep representation on all levels. And you and I looked at the kind of reviewing things like how the Tea Party took over municipal politics and how effective that was. I thought, well, this makes sense. I frankly had always kind of looked at the larger picture and ignored municipal politics. But at that point, it actually felt nice to have a little locus of control over the things we can and create, you know, our little castles in the sand, our models here on the local level, when we really were losing all control and, and in terms of vision on the, on the higher level. Tell us a bit about your activism pre-running. You're now in your second term. Yes, uh, as, I am. As the counselor from Ward 7. Yeah. Uh, tell us, well, not sure which one to do in which order. <laughs> Let's start this. Where's Ward 7? Ward 7 is all of Leeds and part of Florence. It's very physically large to, to make up for the fact that we're spread out. Okay. And tell us what your activism was before you ran for city council. Well, let's see. My activism started at UMass. Uh, we had a, I, as soon as I arrived there, this was the, the late 80s, early 90s, it was actually, people don't think of the 80s and the early 90s as a time of activism, but there was really quite, quite the organizations going on, um, at the student level at least. A bunch of us got arrested for protesting the CIA at Munson Hall. We had a fabulous trial here at the, at the courthouse in which we were acquitted. Tom Lesser was my lawyer. <laughs> and, you know... Uh, yeah, and so after that, I I have, grew a fondness for Northampton and also for activism, and I went on to be a health worker in, in Nicaragua and the in the Latin Latin America for years, and worked on uh, various causes. But you know, the just like a lot of people, I was kind of getting a little um, placated, and so when Trump was elected, it was really a wake up call to to kind of renew my activism, and the fact that I was saying not my I'm not that person. 
We need the not my, I'm not that person people to run. That's exactly who we need to run, actually. Not just demographically, but personality types. We need all, we need all sorts of representation. Now, you are, by dint of being a city councilor and by virtue of your long-time activism and devotion to the community, I think considered one of our community leaders. And what I would like to discuss with you today are the ballot questions because they have local applicability, obviously statewide application as well. They are crucial to the future of Massachusetts in a number of ways. And I was struck, the coincidence, that Lisa Klein, who was your predecessor as the Ward 7 City Councilor right. in Northampton, has a long letter in today's Daily Hampshire Gazette. I'm going to read you a couple sentences, and then we are going to discuss the topic of that letter, which is question four, ballot question four. Here's what Elisa Klein writes in today's Gazette. In less than two weeks, Massachusetts residents will have the opportunity to uphold a law that enables all qualified residents to apply for a driver's license regardless of immigration status or proof of citizenship. In an era when immigrant families are at risk of deportation every time they get behind the wheel, the Work and Family Mobility Act provides a safe and legal pathway to obtain a driver's license. Driver's license. All Massachusetts families should be able to safely get to work and school. So, that's the beginning paragraph of Lisa Klein's letter. I would appreciate your sharing with us your position with regard to ballot question four, Rachel Mayori. Well, thank you. Yes, I'm a strong supporter of four. And uh, one thing that folks might not know is that this is this. If we don't if we don't vote for this now, it's not going to come up before us again for it could, could it could be like a decade. That's how it works at, at the state house. So this is crucial that we vote now for this. Um, I think it's just, it makes sense. We've already, we've already made our wishes known, at, you know, at the state level. We've already voted for this, and I think it's, it's time to uphold what the, what the community would like. And I just think it's part of being fair. We have non-citizens and, and undocumented folks in our, in our community working with us, working for us, and we don't need another circuitous, unattainable path for them. That's partly why they're undocumented in the first place. These are not clear paths to, from point A to point B. There are also people here who are uh, appropriately, uh, uh, have appropriate documents who still can't get driver's license because of this. They're here and they're applying for asylum, but while the asylum process is ongoing, they still don't have status and they still can't get a driver's license. Uh, so that's I think right. that's one point. The, the, other, uh, the two other points uh, that I'd like to discuss you, one, one is that in Massachusetts, we have this view of ourselves as a progressive state, a leader in progressive causes and the like. And, and many people think that question four is a progressive, uh, progressive act, the Work and Family Mobility Act. This will make us the 18th state <laughs> to pass such a law. Um, we are not a leader in all this. What's your view of, uh, is this a misplaced uh, notion that no Massachusetts is progressive? Why are we sort of behind the field in all of this and passing a law that will get to all the common sense and all the uh, reasons that law enforcement supports it, but what's with this idea that Massachusetts is progressive when in a lot of ways, well, we're, we're really not. That's right. I think, you know, I think once you put that check mark by an identity or a thought, then you, you, you cease kind of critically thinking about things and looking at what's really before you. I think that's part of the problem. Um, but yeah, I would just feel, and there's also the strain on the issue of, um, of undocumented folks and immigrants. You know, there's this issue where we want them to do the work and they, they, they keep our community afloat in all these ways, but then they're supposed to be invisible and kind of drives me crazy. They're part of our community. One of the aspects of uh, Elisa Klein's letter today that I think is worthy of note is this. She says that she's now the director of executive director of uh, Grow Food Northampton. She says, here at Grow Food Northampton, we understand how the Work and Family Mobility Act is in inextricably linked to our organization's mission to create a just and resilient local food system 
Most farm workers in the United States and a large portion of farm workers here in the Pioneer Valley either lack immigration status or are employed via the precarious and temporary H-2A visa status. Um, really, without farm workers, we don't eat. And without driver's license in Western Massachusetts, they don't get to work. Quick question, Dr. Newman. H-2A visa, are you al allowed to apply for a license at this point as it stands right now? That's a good question. I, th I don't know for sure. I think H-2A... I don't know the answer to that. Because you sure. have documentation. Yeah, documentation. Right. 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 But it's at least it points out a precarious position where you may not may not last with that visa because right. the day that it's the kind of the bewitching hour, the day that you're supposed to go back, you're not here with documentation. I don't right. know about I don't know the answer. Uh, Bill, we'll the find one, out. one of the questions I've gotten from constituents who were concerned about this question was, well, where that will they be able to vote, you know, if they and that's just not true. You you know, when you apply you have to say whether you're a citizen, you, you know, if it's not, it's not, it does not uh, make a path forward for people who have driver's license to vote in elections. Right. In fact, the documentation that is necessary in order to apply for the license uh, proves that you are not a citizen and therefore right. cannot vote. Right. So this is just a, a trope that is being uh, circulated by people who want to discriminate against persons without documents who want to uh, discriminate against immigrants. I, there's no, no, no validity right. to the claim that somehow this enables uh, non-citizens to vote. Right. And because, you know, the, these immigrants are already here in our community, one wonders what the, the motive of, of the whole campaign against for is. I mean, it really is. To me, it's about let's keep them in fear. Let's keep try to keep them in shadows. Let's not, you know, it's really kind of psychological. Because they're here and they're driving and they have to drive. So what's, what, is, what is it about? Right, which is one of the reasons that question four has the overwhelming support of law enforcement. Uh -huh. Sheriffs, district attorneys, uh, police chiefs uh, overwhelmingly support question four mm -hmm. because they think drivers should be trained and licensed and insured and the proof is, in other states which have done this, that it has improved, which have a law of like question four, uh, the Work and Family Mobility Act, that those states have experienced a increase in road safety, a decrease in road violations. And so law enforcement says, yes, we are in favor of question four. And to me, this congruence of law enforcement and progressives saying, yes, we back the same things. We may do it for different priorities or different reasons, but there is this huge support for question four. It's a unique opportunity in that way, I think. Yeah, that's right. Yep, that makes sense to me. And so I really hope that, that everyone will be voting and that they'll be voting yes on four. We're going to take a quick break now. We're going to continue our conversation with Northampton City Council Rachel Mayori, and we're going to talk about question one. We'll also have a few things to say about questions two and three right after this. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. The Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster, Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2, only on WHMP. Brought to you by Greenfield Savings Bank, with offices all throughout Hampshire and Franklin counties. Greenfieldsavings.com. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster, WHMP. At American National, we understand the tried and true farm and ranch lifestyle, and what's important to you is important to us. You deserve an insurance plan custom made to meet all the specific needs of your agribusiness operation. American National offers flexible farm and ranch policies with package options to help better protect your livelihood. We're right by your side. For more information and to connect with a local American National agent, just visit AmericanNational.com. American National Property and Casualty Company and Affiliates, Springfield, Missouri. 
If you are on the Eversource reduced electricity rate, whether you're on it now or you're eligible, you can tap into Co-op Power's solar arrays and lower your electric bill. A new energy justice initiative allows 120 low-income families to go solar, save money, and become owner members of Co-op Power. Join Co-op Power's 1,200 owner members building community-owned energy. For details, go to the Co-op Power website, coopower.coop. What happens in high school stays in high school? Not quite. In fact, quite the opposite. What happens in high school has a deep and lasting effect. High school is a time of discovery of how you'll be in the world. At the Hartsburg School in Hadley, that means discovering more than the right answers to test questions. Hartsburg students take their science studies into the woods, for instance, or the garden, or goat barn. They study history through the lens of architecture, or art, or music. There's time to be young and curious and unhurried. High school isn't a race or a contest. It's a journey towards self-determination. Hartsbrook High School students learn they can handle adversity and cultivate an unwavering sense that they can take action in the world. Plus, they sing together. Schedule a visit anytime. Visiting day for current eighth graders is this Wednesday, November 2nd, from 8 a.m. until about noon. Spend time with students and teachers and see what high school at Hartsbrook is really like. Want to support the kind of talk you hear on the afternoon buzz? Want to hear your business's message here on WHMP? Email us, yourmessage at whmp.com. We'll help you craft a marketing message that'll reach listeners of your favorite WHMP show. And you'll be supporting the local news, Valley Talk, and progressive voices you hear right here on WHMP. Let us know about your message. Email us, yourmessage at whmp.com. And add your message to our mission. And hear your message right here on WHMP. Your message at whmp.com. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Northampton City Council, Rachel Mayori. Let's turn to ballot question number one, the fair share amendment. Counselor, what say you? <laughs> I say yes. I say it's about time for us to, 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 to re- rethink and, and redistribute uh, the earnings that we have in Massachusetts, and it's very reasonable. If it, if you re- you read about it in the booklet um, that you received as a voter, you'll see it's it's not extreme. It's it's quite sensical to me. How about you, Bill? It's a four percent tax on additional adjusted gross income, not wealth. It's not a wealth tax. Adjusted gross income in a year of over a million dollars. And it seems to me that if you are making, for example, a, with an adjusted gross income of a million and one dollars, you can afford the four cents. And if you should make two million dollars that year, probably Massachusetts has done something to help you make that money. And therefore, for, on two million dollars of adjusted gross income, that's after all the deductions and everything else, um, so it's income really probably far in excess of that, you could afford that person could afford the $40,000 on the second million dollars of income. So they got $960,000 instead of a million. Um, And I think that that's fair. And therefore, it's called the fair share amendment because people who are making millions of dollars um, of income in a year based on, frankly, the work of everyone in the Commonwealth that makes that in kind of income possible, it's fair. The reason it's unfair now is that Massachusetts has a constitutional provision that says we have a flat tax. Everyone pays the same 5%. So an additional 4% for the next million. If you're not making a million, it's not going to cost you a penny. If you're not going to make a million in adjusted gross income next year, it's not going to cost you a penny. And these Funds are going to go to transportation. They're going to go to education. They are the things, they are the infrastructure of the Commonwealth that make people rich, really rich, and able to earn this kind of money. And I think it was really telling last week that one of the opponents of the of this ballot question came out and said, yeah, it's really not going to cost me very much. It really, it's not going to hurt me at all. And oh, by the way, yes, it is the infrastructure of the Commonwealth that makes me so wealthy and allows me to earn this kind of money. It was staggeringly honest in that regard. 
So I, I think it's really... But they're still not voting for it? <laughs> yeah, still not voting for it. Um, but that said, this yeah. is for transportation. This is for education. Those are the things that are going to make Massachusetts a really strong, vibrant commonwealth and are going to make people really wealthy. This is $2 billion a year toward additional for education and transportation. Yeah, that's a lot of school bake sales. <laughs> that's Yeah, right. It reminds me of the old, boy, m- apropos of your having been arrested with Abby Hoffman, um, <laughs> you know, it's, it, we're looking for the day when the uh, Congress funds schools and the Pentagon needs to have a bake sale. Well, I remember that. That was before memes, but basically. <laughs> <laughs> Same. <laughs> well, I remember. Let's leave it there. Um, I, I would, uh, I think maybe if we have time, we'll come back to the other uh, questions on the ballot, uh, two and two and three. But I would like to uh, turn to two issues that have been really front and center in Northampton recently. Um, one is the marijuana store on the corner of the main intersection in Florence. What do you say about that? Well, it's already been said at this point, uh, you know, that it's that conversation's over now because the mayor did not sign the host community agreement and chose not to. And that was unusual. I mean, that hasn't happened. In fact, when we first, when there was first pushback, we had to even kind of go to the lawyers and say, what can, what can, what can the mayor do in terms of discretion around not signing a host community agreement. I, I feel like that was the right call for that lo- location. I think that location was not ideal. I understand the hoops that uh, prospective business owners have to go through um, with cannabis and locations, but that one was just not going to serve the community well. So I think she made the right call on that. And, and so the mayor of the city has the final call. It's it all comes down to the mayor at the end? Well, on this issue, yes. I mean, you know, in theory, if, if council kind of scrambled we and we capped it before the host community agreement was was um, signed, then then we the council could have that kind of power. So now council's kind of left with the decision about where we want to go from here, what kind of, we, we make more general decisions. You know, we can't make zoning or permits or just capping decisions around just one business. So we really need to have, we've been having those conversations, but we really need to decide where we're going. And actually, the more I've de- been delving into this kind of complex issue, the more I'm very concerned about how we're doing on equity in business owners. Not just the amount of stores we have, but how many of them are actually social equity candidates, and how can we encourage, you know, more equity in that in that business? It's there's a, so much money. They come in with, it com- you know, some of these businesses with a lot of money, and now there's this exciting new state the stipulation for trust funds for social equity candidates, and how can Northampton both regulate and control kind of the culture here, and where we're going with cannabis, but also, you know encourage equity owners. And we're talking about uh, cannabis retail retail stores. Okay. So one last question on this. Does it cause a problem for prospective uh, cannabis entrepreneurs that they have to go through any number of regulatory hoops and they get their first license and their second hearing and their third approval, and then at the end, the mayor can just say no? Is that a problem? I mean, it's a lot of work. And actually, (laughs) I think some of the regulations... Does have the effect of a chilling effect in terms of n- discouraging social equity candidates. It is a lot of hoops to go through, so I, that's why I think she took that decision very, you know, very seriously. And it, it's not done very often not to sign a host community agreement. But you, you know, there was it, it, there was a certain amount of pushback about that specific location. I think if there was another location, and she did say she would she would entertain a license at a at another location in Florence. Let me turn to one other matter that is also settled, but I would appreciate your perspective in particular because I disagree with you about I it. Know, I know we disagree. I know what you're going to say. <laughs> okay, so you ask the question and no, answer no, it. No, yeah, it's okay. <laughs> this has to do with the church. Um, yeah. uh, so uh, on yeah. Holy Street, a, a, a contentious issue for some. Uh, what, what was your position and why? Right. No, it was that was definitely a tough one. I, res- I that was one of those ones where I, I I see that people can reasonably disagree. I, I understand why we all came to our own conclusions, and I was really on the fence for a while. But for me, 
I think we really we are the gatekeepers. The council is the gatekeepers of the tax money, and we have to take that role very seriously. And I I couldn't I couldn't live I couldn't sit with voting for a half a million dollars to. Uh, a private for-profit entity that had the opportunity to, if they did not, they knew they bought a church, and if they did not want to renovate it, it they were, there were opportunities for them to rid themselves of that property, and they chose not to. So I didn't like the feeling, frankly, of kind of being over barrel. I don't like, I don't like that feeling. I was hoping that we could find other ways to save the church. I certainly wanted to save the church, and I'm glad it is going to be preserved. But oh, that was very deft. <laughs> you are glad the church is being saved. There's, the, other, there's many ways to preserve the church besides a half a million dollars of tax money. Right, but the problem was, and the reason I disagree with you, is I think the decision that was in front of the council was either approve the use of the uh, preservation funds, the Community Preservation Act funds, or they're going to tear down the church. It's, I, I agree with you about how it felt. And no one thought it was a perfect solution, right. least of all me. But, and as I wrote in my column in the Gazette, the decision was either you approve the money, the CPA funds, or they're going to tear down the church. That was the decision in front of the council. Well, or the possibility of a demolition is there. Right. The yes, that's true. And there's a leap of faith there. And, and you know, interestingly, I've been I having... I see what you did there <coughs> about a church. <laughs> a leap of faith. <laughs> I did do that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so I'm working with Deborah Hansen, who is, you know, the, the person who is in charge of saving the church. And we're working to look at the, the municipal process that got us in that bind. What, what, who makes these the criteria for demolition? What are, you know, I'm really interested in that now. So we're working together, both sides, to figure out you know, how we got there and try to avoid it because it's going to come up again. We've got St. Mary's. We've got a lot of churches. So I think it's, this, is not, this is an issue that we're going to be faced with again. Before we go, just because we promoted and it's worth, I want to spend 30 seconds apiece on question two and question three. We have a yes on one for sure and yes on four because the question on four on the Work and Family Mobility Act is shall we preserve the law? And the answer to that is yes, yes, yes. Just say yes on one and just say yes on four. And I think you can say just say yes on two, which is the question about how much, what percentage of dental premiums have to be actually spent on dental care. Yeah, I voted across the board yes, which was quite easy and felt very positive. <laughs> across the board, yes. Okay, well, this is very easy. We can take... Nancy Reagan and channel her to say, just say yes. <laughs> just say yes. On the ballot questions. Exactly. Rachel Mayori, counselor from Ward 7 in Northampton, thank you so much for being with us. On thank this, you very much, Bill. On this segment. <laughs> this is Bill Newman, WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. State Rep. Mindy Dom is voting yes on question four, a law giving Massachusetts residents without legal immigration status the ability to legally obtain a driver's license. Dom says Lucio Perez, the Amherst man who sought asylum in an Amherst church for years, is an example of why we need this law. I feel like we have a special kind of connection to this, like Northampton in some respects, because we were providing a sanctuary for Lucio for a long time who got caught because he didn't have a driver's license and was threatened with being deported as a result of not having a driver's license. Opponents of the Work and Family Mobility Act have argued it will make it easier to commit voter and other forms of fraud, but proponents call this misinformation and point to 17 other states that already allow immigrants to obtain driver's licenses. Former Northampton Mayor Claire Higgins is being recognized by the nonprofit Friends of Children. Higgins, who was mayor from 1999 to 2011, received the Changemaker Award for being a steadfast advocate for vulnerable children in the Pioneer Valley. Jane Lyons, executive director of Friends of Children, tells the Gazette Higgins was a huge proponent of early childhood education as a gateway for children. Her work helped promote economic justice and improve the quality of life for people with lower incomes. And the Powerball jackpot for today's drawing is now an estimated $1 billion, with the cash option being $497.3 million. This will be the second time in Powerball history that the jackpot has reached $1 billion, following behind the world record of $1.586 billion in January of 2016.
For today, look for a mixture of sunshine and clouds. It'll be mild, high 60 to 64. Tonight, cloudy with showers developing late. Overnight lows 48 to 52. And the outlook for Tuesday, mostly cloudy chance for showers. Highs in the low to mid 60s. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Adam Stremko on 101.5 WHMP. This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rochivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. Las agencias de seguridad de Estados Unidos han emitido un aviso de amenaza intensificada advirtiendo sobre posibles ataques contra candidatos políticos, funcionarios electorales y otros. La alerta llegó el viernes, el mismo día en que el esposo de la presidenta de la Cámara de Representantes, Nancy Pelosi, fue atacado en su casa de San Francisco. Un boletín fue emitido por el Departamento de Seguridad Nacional, el FBI, el Centro Nacional de Contraterrorismo y la Policía del Capitolio de Estados Unidos. El riesgo de violencia es alimentado por una aumento en el extremismo violento doméstico y quienes llevan a cabo los ataques probablemente lo hagan por razones ideológicas. Es probable que la mayoría de las personas citen las elecciones presidenciales de 2020 repitiendo la narrativa falsa de que los resultados fueron sesgados y que el expresidente Donald Trump fue el ganador legítimo según la advertencia. A menos de dos semanas del día de las elecciones, el presidente Biden pidió el viernes a las figuras políticas que rechacen clara e inequívocamente la violencia política y calificó el ataque a Pelosi y de despreciable. En otras informaciones, por cuarto año consecutivo se llevará a cabo la celebración del Día de Muertos con la instalación de la ofrenda anual de la comunidad de Holyoke desde este lunes 31 de octubre hasta el miércoles 2 de noviembre en Laurel Park, ubicado entre las calles Laurel y Willow en Holyoke. Esta ofrenda representa parte de la tradición cultural de México y varios países de Latinoamérica, así como pueblos indígenas y la comunidad chicana en Estados Unidos, y se coloca como un lugar para ceremonia, festividad y recuerdo hacia las personas fallecidas como parte de la expresión cultural y espiritual indígena latinex. La ofrenda estará disponible para todo el público y se estarán ofreciendo charlas sobre su historia y significado durante el día mientras esté en exhibición. Para más información puede visitar attackbearpress.com. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This news minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Welcome to NPR, Northampton Poetry Radio with erstwhile poet laureate of Northampton, Rich Michelson. Hey, Bill, how are you? And uh, welcome to everyone. Uh, we have a guest today that I'm very much looking forward to this, uh, Matt Donovan. Um, many people will be reading. Let's just start right at the beginning. So you can put this on your calendar because I know you're all busy today doing a lot of stuff. So mark it down. November 1st, tomorrow, 7 p.m., Weinstein Auditorium at Smith College. Uh, Matt will be reading from his brand new collection, the Dug Up Gun Museum. And he will be reading with Nathan McLean, uh, who just by happenstance, will you believe this, will be our guest tomorrow oh, wow. on Northampton Poetry Radio. How does that happen, huh? I don't know. I just, don't know. The Jesus, world works in just, mysterious it's ways. It's great. So um, Matt is uh, the author of two previous poetry collections, a book of lyric essays. He has won a Whiting Award, a Rome Prize in Literature, an NEA Fellowship. All that is to say that he's an important poet, uh, well-respected. And for us local folks, he is the director of the Boutel Day Poetry Center at Smith College. He is the guy that brings in all the good readers for us and brings the poetry to the valley. Uh, but we are here today to talk about Matt as a poet. And his new book, again, The Dug Up Gun Museum by Boa Editions, one of the premier presses in this country. It is absolutely a beautiful book, and it is a moving and uh, quite devastating book as well. Uh, those people who know my poetry know that my father was a victim of gun violence, and I have been writing about that for 40-plus years. Uh, this book, The Dug Up Gun Museum, is about this country's obsession with guns, its history of gun violence, its fetization of guns. Um, oh boy, uh, it's about violence, race, power, privilege, and it is just, uh, just moving. So Matt, uh, I'd like to start out just so people get a sense of your work, and then we'll talk a little bit about it. Uh, can you read to us a poem? 
Here, the thing with feathers isn't hope, but a 400-pound pistol in the bed of a pickup welded together from scrapyard metal and stamped with names of kids shot and killed near the artist's home. Except for all the feathers, dyed cotton candy blue and affixed to the pistol's cylinder and grip, wrapping the length of the barrel with a flourish like a boa entwining a neck, it might seem like any other oversized gun. Conversation piece, he called it, although the feathers came later, only after he'd begun driving south with a plan to haul the sculpture from Chicago to Atlanta, then back through Charleston and Sandy Hook. But when he stopped for gas the first time, he knew his art had failed when a man sprinted across the parking lot to say, God damn, that's one badass gun. Something needed to change. Maybe feathers could turn the pistol into a thing you approached with a question instead of praise. And if the plumes now covered some of the names, bearing the elegies hammered into metal, what choice did he have but to continue driving through town after town, listening to the wind's song whipping across the wide mouth of the barrel, tending to the gun now and then from a sack of feathers he kept in the back seat to use whenever storms lashed things loose. That is Matt Donovan reading from the Dug Up Gun Museum. He will be reading tomorrow night, November 1st at 7 p.m. at the Weinstein Auditorium in Smith College. So, Matt, when I first picked up this book, um, I expected to maybe have a poem or two about gun violence. Uh, I didn't realize that it really was a sustained look at this country's violence um, from, well, from the beginning of the country until today, mm. and there's no sort of shortage of subjects. Uh, I'm wondering what, because you have written essays and a book of essays, I'm wondering why you decided to um, attack this subject in poetry as opposed to essays. Yeah, that's a great question. So to be honest, um, the book started out as a nonfiction project. Um, I wanted to, um, like so many of us, I was um, incredibly concerned about gun violence in our country, but also completely um, infuriated by our lack of an ability to enact real and meaningful change. Um, so motivated by that, I wanted to go out, I wanted to travel the country, I wanted to meet people, I wanted to learn more about guns and gun culture, um, I wanted to talk to people about guns, and I didn't want to write it as a book of poems. I wanted to write it as a book of even straightforward, mass-market nonfiction um, in order, in, in my mind, to reach as wide of an audience as possible, to ask the questions most directly. Um, had an agent for that project. Um, things were moving forward with that project. Um, and then we went out um, with that as, um, you know, we approached different presses with that as a nonfiction book. And nobody was interested. And the response that I got back from the agents and the editors was, um, this is one of the most important issues um, of our time. Gun books don't sell. Um, no one wants to read a book about guns. So either you uh, don't like guns and you don't want to read a whole book about it or um, you are someone who is a gun owner and you don't need some gun noob telling you anything about guns. And so that project fell apart. And for a long time, I wasn't sure it would become anything else. But there were so many people I encountered and images that I saw and um, moments that I couldn't relinquish from my travels. So I just started to write them as initially shorter prose pieces, and then gradually they became some of the poems in this book. Um, so that, that's, that's why it ended up morphing into a book of poems. I'd, I'd be interested to know, Matt Donovan, whether in your research, in your talking to people, whether you came across gun owners who were actually totally rational about this topic, whether they felt put upon and uh, 
somehow categorized and classified in ways that they felt were unfair and wrong, and whether that in any way changed your attitude or your perspective with regard to gun ownership. Absolutely. That's such an important um, question and point. Um, so um, I, not long after I, I started the project, I found myself, for instance, in Cody, Wyoming, um, and I sat down with someone who was a gun store um, owner, um, and he sold guns in a shop, um, and he was someone who was a proponent of arming teachers in the public schools, um, something at the time that was a pretty um, new idea. Unfortunately, I think that has become more common. Um, but one of the first things he said to me was, he said, when you say you're writing a book about gun culture, he said, what exactly do you mean by that? And he started to list, you know, he said, so you could be thinking about gun collectors, you could be thinking about hunters, you could be thinking about someone who, you know, is a prepper versus a survivalist um, versus someone who has it for ordinary protection. And what he pointed out to me was I was thinking about it in monolithic and kind of stereotypical terms. So I didn't agree with a lot of what that gun shop owner um, had to say about guns, but um, what he was pointing out to me was my reductive thinking about it. So, to, and then to answer your question, um, there almost, I'd say uh, I met one person in Cody who was not a gun owner. Um, you found the one person in Cody, Wyoming who doesn't own a gun. That's good research. That's um, not easy to do. Uh, and it was not someone I was looking for. He just happened to mention that he was actually at a cafe and he happened to mention that he did not own guns. But there, you know, for instance, on that school board, there were people who were fighting hard against this plan to arm public school officials, but they were gun owners. They were people who had grown up, say, like um, uh, with uh, going hunting with their families. And the one reason why they were against arming public school teachers um, was because they understood the danger of guns. They understood the complications of training someone for that purpose. And they were leftists, they were progressive on every political issues, but they also happened to be gun owners. Um, I also, I, this poem didn't make it, this chapter didn't make it into this collection of poems, but um, I traveled to Michigan and I went hunting with my brother-in-law. Um, he's an avid hunter, he owns several guns, and he is an incredibly responsible gun owner, as is um, you know the, the other friends of his that I met there. Um, they are also someone deeply concerned about gun violence um, in this country. And they also, not only are they... Um, responsible gun owners, but uh, they are incredible stewards of the land. They could identify trees and species that I could not. They put my own knowledge of the world to shame. And that was worth thinking about too, that, you know, to think, to, to simply vilify hunters is also, I think, a mistake. So to answer your question, absolutely, 100%. You are listening to Matt Donovan. He will be reading tomorrow evening, 7 p.m. at Weinstein Auditorium at Smith College. Uh, we're going to take a break. We will be back with Matt and talk more about the poetry of this book uh, in a moment. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Do you know what's going on in business in Western Mass? You do if you read Business West. Find out which companies are growing, which companies are innovating. Learn about people on the move, people taking the lead. Every issue of Business West is packed with business news, including incorporations, building permits, real estate transactions, and bankruptcies. Pick up a copy or read Business West online. The vital business news is in Business West, the business journal of Western Mass. When it comes to investing, we're taught the higher the risk, the better the reward. Francis Ram, the money doctor, says it isn't necessarily true. We need to remember that with risk comes the potential for losses, and making up losses can set us back or worse, delay our retirement. You've heard the testimonials for years about how her patented program helps people become 100% debt-free, far ahead of schedule. But did you know that for more than 35 years, Dr. Ram has been helping people retire well with 
without unnecessary risk? Dr. Ram says most people mistakenly accept that in order to earn attractive interest rates, they must tolerate risk and that choosing safety means settling for lackluster returns. But it doesn't have to be that way. You can earn competitive rates and minimize taxes without risking a single dollar of your hard-earned savings. Contact the money doctor at Hug Your Money for a free consultation. Call 413-773-3333 or visit HugYourMoney.com. State Street Fruit Store. What the heck is a fruit store anyway? Well, State Street opened in Northampton in the 1920s as a fruit store, selling local fruit and other produce from the valley. And even though State Street has grown to be much more, deli, wines, spirits, they are still a fruit store. And right now, State Street and their sister store, Cooper's Corner in Florence, are under an avalanche of apples and everything from the orchards up and down the valley. Galas and honey crisps, McCown and the good old fashioned Macintosh, along with pears, plums, and other delights from the orchard. Northampton has always been a fruity place. We are what we eat. State Street Fruit Store in Northampton and Cooper's Corner in even fruitier Florence. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. So this is Massachusetts' way of saying, we think it's an important program. We think it's important enough to continue for students and their families. And we're going to put the money up front to make sure it continues so that if the federal government does not renew it, Massachusetts will still have universal school meals. 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. A young cowboy named Billy Joe grew restless on the farm. We continue our segment, Northampton Poetry Radio, with erstwhile poet laureate Rich Michelson and our very special guest poet, Matt Donovan. Rich. Hi. Well, we could obviously talk about this subject for hours and hours. It's a complicated subject. And the subject, for those of you just joining us, is guns. Is is guns. Uh, Matt will be reading from the Dug Up Gun Museum, his new book of poetry, uh, tomorrow night, 7 p.m., November 1st, at Weinstein Auditorium. Be there. Uh, this, this is an important book. Uh, Matt's an important poet. He will be reading with Nathan McLean, who will be on our show tomorrow. Uh, so uh, you're in for a treat. The subject matter is difficult, but it must be um, approached. And it's done in a beautiful, beautiful way because, I mean, again, there's music to these poems. There's complexity to these poems. Um, let, let's give people another uh, look at what they're going to, another listen to what they're going to hear tomorrow. Sure. Um, this is a poem that actually references that story I was just talking about, about um, meeting someone in Cody, Wyoming. This is called Solipsism, a story. Victim mentality, he told me, means sitting with your back to the door anywhere at all. Even, I was learning, while sipping a Red Bull and surrounded by tourists at the Hotel Buffalo Bill named after his daughter. I'd more likely leave my house without my pants than without my gun. So even though we were talking in the Irma's side saloon about plans to arm Cody's teachers, scenario training, lockable holsters, the deterrence of not knowing who's armed, the theme was readiness is all. Pistol in hand when opening the front door, peering through his gun shop's window before stepping inside. And how whenever he drives to another town, he'll have an AR-15 and extra mags and a quick zip-off on the back seat, a 45 on the hip and ankle guns strapped tight, while his girlfriend rides shotgun with a 38 in her purse and a 40 caliber in the back without fail. Five guns for a drive to Billings. Just in case, you never know. What else could I think but you have to be kidding me, and I can't wait to tell this tale. Before leaving town, I circled back to his store, wanting to hard grip his hand, see what else he might let slip. As I strolled the rifles and pistols, clips 
and cases, gun safes and gunpowder, waiting for him to finish whatever he was doing with the gun he held. The green eyes of a taxidermy leopard stared at something that was not me. Its dark mouth hinged open to show the curved shape someone had chosen for its tongue. Hey, I'm glad you came back. Don't take this the wrong way. But I've been telling folks I met some guy who doesn't own a gun, an unarmed dad, and no one can believe it. We looked at each other for a half beat, maybe more, and didn't say what we were thinking about how each of us had chosen to move through this world or how both of us by then had turned into a story about something impossible, glimpsed somewhere we thought we knew. I haven't spoken to him since. That is Matt Donovan reading from the Dug Up Gun Museum by Boa Editions. He, Matt will be reading November 1st, tomorrow evening at 7 p.m. at the Weinstein Auditorium. And um, Matt, just quickly, because we don't have a lot of time left, uh, I know you've also written a chamber opera uh, piece on Sarah Winchester. Uh, this is a subject that has consumed you for a long time. Why? Why have guns consumed yeah. me? Oh, gosh. Well, I mean, just our our prevalence of gun violence, our um, failure to enact change, my concern for my, for my own kids, um, my feeling that it would be possible to enact some kind of change if we were able to have um, authentic dialogue about this to topic that's so divisive um, and that so often I think um, fails to even get going and also because America never seems to run out of an, you know another story where um, someone has been needlessly killed about guns yeah it's from uh, guns it, it's it's fascinating it's a beautiful book it's an amazing book um, were you able to write other poems while you were doing this, or did this really just take over your life? This this took over my life. This project consumed me. I mean, in part because there were so so much of it was about traveling. I wanted to get out and travel the country and talk to people, so that was one thing that was time consuming. Um, and there were there seemed to be so much um, that I wanted to try to. Um, cover here, so I did not write any other pieces um, that uh, that didn't involve guns at the time. I will say it is a little cathartic to be moving on to new pieces in which no one gets shot. Um, right. <laughs> I'm, so I'm trying to write some new poems um, and, and, now. And you're also working on an art exhibit that will be opening next month at APE. Uh, so look for Matt and his wife uh, at APE Gallery. Lots going on, Matt. It's been a pleasure. I hope everybody can make it tomorrow night. Um, congratulations on this book. Thank you for uh, contributing to this dialogue in such an important way. Uh, and it's poetry. It's beautiful. Uh, and music goal. So what, One more you, time, everyone. Rich. When and where? Uh, one more time. It is tomorrow night, November 1st, Weinstein Auditorium at Smith College at 7 p.m. with Nathan McLean. Hope to see everyone there. Thank you both. Matt Donovan, Rich Michelson. At this Pioneer is Bill Valley Newman, WHMP. We believe in a hand up, not a handout. Habitat's mission to provide home ownership opportunities to low-income families is unique as it requires partner families to work alongside the many volunteers that are reaching out to help them. Each Habitat partner family provides at least 250 hours of sweat equity or physical labor toward the construction of their own home, other Habitat family homes, and special projects. We believe this shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder joint effort results not only in a better finished house, but that this shared work experience makes for a better community. If you believe everyone should have a decent place to live, that home ownership brings strength and stability to families, and that everyone deserves the opportunity for a better future, we could use your support. We're Pioneer Valley Habitat for Humanity. We build homes, hope, and community in both Franklin and Hampshire counties. Learn more today. Please visit us at pvhabitat.org. Live and local news and talk for Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. A Northampton Radio Group Station. It's 10 o'clock.